Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Can I pray for us as we enter into a message? Lord, um, you are God. Jesus, we declare you as God and you have um, great plans for this city. You have hope for this city. And your hope um, actually involves us. That the answer to the prayer of God, would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, comes through your hands and feet, your church, your family, us. I pray, Lord, that that prayer would be answered in this city. That Jesus, we would represent you well, that we would make your name famous in Long Beach. That we would use our gifts, our talents, our time, our money to bless this place, God. Jesus, would you give us grace to um, walk through this transition? It's going to be full of tears and memories that are good. And, um, and uh, it's hard when things get taken away. It feels like it's injustice. But we know, God, that you're sovereign, which means at the end of the day, you will work this out for good. So we, we pray that and we claim that truth, God, and we want to receive that. Help us when it's hard to believe what is true. And Jesus, we give you this time. We come from all different places, tired, excited, exhausted, energized, um, hopeful, in despair, addicted, free. It doesn't matter. We come, Lord, but we want to be present with you. So I pray more than anything today, God, we would just be present that we be fully ourselves in this moment and receive whatever you have for us. And we pray that the power of your spirit would come forth through this word in your name. Amen. All right, guys, if you have a Bible, pull it out. We are going to survey a whole bunch of scripture today. Um, and if you need a Bible, there's some up here in the front. And my, my man here, what was your name again? Stefan's going to help me pass them out. Do you mind? Thanks, brother. It's his first time. He's already serving. Um, that's, he knows how to play. Thank you, brother. Um, so the cross. If, if, they, if you guys raise your hand, Stefan's going to pass you a Bible. Thank you, Stefan. Uh, see how easy it is to get involved, by the way? If you thought, man, I got to send an email. No, you just show up. Remember what John Peter said last week? God uses people who what? Show up. So today um, we're transitioning. We're done with Ephesians. It was a great series. We talked through that book for quite a few months. And uh, we're going to start a new series in the near future, but we're moving our way to Easter. And I thought, let's take some time over the next three weeks to reflect on the cross. Next week, I have a guest speaker coming in. He's not that, a guest to us. His name's Chris Venan. You know him he's, as a South African guy. Um, he's, he's taught at the garden quite a few times. He's a great guy. He's going to be he's going to be here next week leading our time. Um, but today I just thought, you know, let's talk about the cross, because um, when I was in high school, People know this. I was hood. I was gangsta. I know it doesn't look like it right now with my skinny jeans and my cardigans. I'm not going to prove it. But but for me, like every every good thug, right? Come on, this is ridiculous. You needed you needed a platinum watch check. You needed dadas on your on your feet. How many of you know what dadas are? Raise those hands. Come on. Uh, see, only a few of us go that deep. That, those were hip hop dancing shoes. Um, 
You, you needed the baggy clothes, the New York beanie, the whole thing, right? You wore all black, like Jay-Z said. Um, and you needed a big old cross. Now, this is what was always unfamiliar for me. Why did all these guys rap about killing people, um, girls and drugs and have these giant cross necklaces? Come on. <laughs> a bit of a paradox. Um, or, you know, today, you know, you see people wearing this, this, the cross around and it's kind of lost its meaning. But for us, as we open ourselves to moving towards Easter, as we open the scripture today, I just want to talk about what does the cross mean for us today? I mean, mean, I mean, like, not like, hey, what is this philosophical, theological argument for us today? But what does it mean for you today when you go to Beachwood Barbecue after our Sunday service? What does the cross mean there? Or when you get in your car tomorrow and drive on your commute, does the cross have any significant implication for that time on your car ride to your job? Because I want to suggest that the cross fundamentally changed the way the world works. The cross did something that changed the way the entire cosmos are structured. And so for me, I just want to talk about that and just have a few thoughts. We're going to take communion today. We're going to have everyone come down and take the cracker and dip it in the juice. But I just thought we could reflect on what the meaning of the cross is from a different angle. And maybe many of us have many of us have grown up in the church. And for many of us, the cross is really about a transaction. How many of you have heard the, the transaction gospel? And this is what it usually sounds like. If you um, if you accept what Jesus did on the cross, you receive, if you believe and accept, you receive a ticket to heaven. And you, you live your life because that transaction happened sometime in the past. Or maybe you said a prayer at one point in a church service. And so you, you got that golden ticket and then you go on living your life until one day you're going to die. And eventually you go to heaven, some other place. How many of you have heard that gospel? Now, that is not the, the whole gospel. Now, there is a part of the gospel that is unbelievable, and it's this idea of grace. It's that actually there was a transaction that took place on the cross, that Jesus actually died for my sins, that he took my place on the cross. I deserve that death. I deserve the wrath of God poured out on me because I rebelled against God, and I've participated in the destruction of the earth. And because of that, I am rightfully justified to be killed on a cross. But Jesus says, not on my watch. For those that believe in him, we are, uh, he, he atoned for that sin. And we get to enter into right relationship with God. That is called grace and hallelujah. Amen. Thank God for that story. And that's what that that is good news. And, and it's difficult for us to talk about the cross because we don't really have a lot of sacrifice, sacrificial system happening these days, do we? Do you regularly go to the temple to offer your squirrel or your, 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 your bowl or your pigeon on behalf of the sins that you committed the previous week? No. We don't even know what blood covering that doesn't that doesn't make sense to us. But but we get the idea when we talk about it a little bit here and there. But today I want to talk about the cross from a different perspective. And so I just all I want to do is is just read through a bunch of scripture that kind of tell the story of what happened to Jesus on the day he was crucified and the days leading up to his death. Are you guys with me on that? OK, so grab your Bible. Let's go to Matthew chapter 21. So the Gospels are unique because there's four different accounts of Jesus's life and death. 
And it's interesting, if the Gospels were a movie, for those of you that are film buffs, it would literally show the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry super fast. Like it would be the introduction, basically, or half of the movie. And the, and the last half of this movie, or the majority of this movie, would be slowed down and be about a couple of days or a few hours of Jesus' life. So when we read the Gospels, it's almost like an introduction to Jesus' death. Have you ever picked up on that? That half of Mark's gospel is really about the cross and there's 16 chapters. So it's really about the last few hours of Jesus's life and what was going on the few days prior to his death. But so we, 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 we have to understand that for the, the New Testament writers and particularly the gospel writers, they, this, the death of Jesus was a significant, had significant implications for how Christians ought to live. The death of Jesus had significant implications for how Christians ought to live. So let's just read what happened. And I just want to kind of give you a picture. And, uh, you know, if we watch uh, the Passion of Christ, this, that would also give us a picture. But I just thought we could read what, what did what early churches did. They, they grabbed text. They would grab letters and they would just read it together as the body of Christ. So let's do this together. Matthew 21. We'll start in verse 23. And um, please grab your Bible. We're going to jump around. I just want to highlight some thoughts. Verse 23. So Jesus enters into Jerusalem. In verse 23, it says, Jesus entered the temple courts. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? So Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem. And the leaders of the, the Israelite religion, the Sanhedrin, the elders, the, the Pharisees, they come to him and they question his authority. How good is it to be questioned? What are you doing here? Why are you here? So it, be, it begins with him being questioned. Go to Matthew uh, verse, chapter 26. Matthew 26. Um, we'll go to verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 14. So a few days go by and Jesus is anointed at Bethany and verse 14, it says this. We're just going to walk through what happens on the last few hours of his death. Then one of the 12, one of the 12 closest friends of Jesus, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Jesus is questioned. And then one of his closest friends. Think about this for a second. This is a guy that has camped for three and a half years following Jesus as a disciple. Someone that literally has been taught by the Jewish religious system, the education system, that you, you literally follow this guy everywhere because you don't want to miss an a moment, an opportunity to not to, to learn something from him. You want to literally there are stories. I think I've shared this before where where uh, disciples would sleep under the rabbi's bed in case the, the rabbi woke up because they didn't want to miss a second without the rabbi. And so we see that one of Jesus's closest friends conspires against him and sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. Can anyone relate to this? Being betrayed for a job opportunity? Something great. Can we relate to that story? Okay, a couple of us can. Cool. Let's keep going. I um, just want to paint the humanity here. So, uh, verse 36 in the same chapter. 
Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So Jesus is at a pivotal moment in his life. He needs his friends. He says, then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Have you ever just needed company? You ever been in a place of grief where you don't even want them to talk? You just want to know that they're there. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Now, remember, they just had a Passover meal. A Passover meal involved four glasses of wine. So you can imagine why they're sleeping. But he says, so he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time saying the same thing when he returned, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come for the Son of Man. He is delivered over to the hands of sinners. Jesus needs friends, and they're nowhere to be found. They sleep while he's going through that trial. Um, Let's go to verse 66 of the same chapter. So he's arrested. He's brought before the courts and they say uh, they're questioning him. They say, what do you think? And they say he is worthy of death. They answered. Then they spit in his face, struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out out of the gateway where there was another servant girl and saw him and said to the people, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know what you mean. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent, your Galilean accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Jesus is spit on. He slapped and his closest friend denies even knowing him. Let's go to verse 20, uh, chapter 27, verse 27. And we'll just finish this last part. Verse 27 of 27, then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took a staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off his robe and put his own clothes on and they led him away to be crucified. This is the account of Jesus's death. 
Let's look at this list together. This is what happened. I'm just going to read this. First, he was questioned. He was betrayed. He was spit on. He was struck in the face. He was slapped. He was mocked. He was denied. Go to the next slide. He was given a crown of thorns. He was stripped naked. Struck with a rod. Flogged, which he was beaten in other accounts. Whipped nearly to death. He was insulted. He was crucified. And he was left naked alone to die. Jesus is given the worst death known to man. Crucifixion for the Romans was a big deal. Roman soldiers became really good at crucifixion. The goal of crucifixion was to keep someone alive as long as possible in the most amount of pain. It is the worst possible death someone can suffer. I just want to talk about that for a second. Let's, go, let's just look at the list one more time and, and maybe make it personal. Because for me... It's hard in everyday life. There's so much else going on. And I, I'm not one to think about this often. But as I slow down for Easter and I think about the cost of the resurrection that we have to go through Good Friday, I, I try to say, Jesus, like, what does this mean for me? Because you were, you were betrayed and spit on and struck in the face for me. Because I, I lie. Because I am filled with pride. Because I'm anger. I have anger. Because I've been filled with lust. Because I'm all these things. And you, because of my disobedience, you were willing to be slapped, mocked, denied. Go to the next slide. You were willing to be given a crown of thorns, stripped naked. I mean, think about being stripped naked. Babies don't even know what's going on. And they're crying when they're getting their diaper change. Crucified. Because of my stuff. And he became the atoning sacrifice for my sin. I deserved it and he took it away. And so we look at it and we can look at it with a bunch of guilt. Like, oh, it just hits you. We get, it, we get emotional. Like, he took that away from me. And that, there's a personal encounter with God. But you know what's so fascinating? Is the early church saw this story that I just read to you in a different way. They saw these events in a different way. And I want to I just point out some thoughts as we reflect on what it means for us to prepare for Easter. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Are you guys with me this morning? Good. Colossians 2, verse 12. Paul will use baptism as a theological illustration for what happened on the cross and in the resurrection. So for Christians, we don't baptize you because that means you're saved. It's just what we do as a symbol of our salvation. So if you haven't been baptized, there's, there's really not an account in the New Testament for Christians that haven't been baptized. I'm just letting you know that we would really love to baptize you for the symbol that we read, even in Colossians. So look at verse 12. Um, having been buried. Remember, this is Paul as a Pharisee, as a Jewish Pharisee, a, a religious leader in his day, working out... What happened on the cross from a from a Jewish lens? He has the whole sacrificial system in his in his heart in his mind. He's probably memorized all the Old Testament, and he's writing a theology for us of the implications of the cross and what happened in Jesus's time. He says, having been crucified with him and baptized, Paul is talking to the church. You have been buried with him in baptism. 
in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. So you were dead before Jesus, but now because you have been baptized, you have been saved. You are made alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, justified us, which stood against us and condemned us. He, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. All of that stuff that we can list about ourselves, Paul says he has nailed that to the cross. And look at what he says. This is what so this is what baffles me. This line is where I, I just don't understand. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Wait a second. Jesus was left naked and died on the cross. Paul's saying he made a public spectacle of sin and death and the powers by laying naked on the cross. That doesn't seem like winning, does it? Go to second or go to first Corinthians chapter 15. We have to we have to see how beautiful this is that the early Christian writers are trying to process what Jesus did on the cross from a, a, a deep theology of Judaism. And so they're taking these legal ideas. They're taking the, the prophets of the Old Testament and they're trying to articulate to to Christians what this represents and go to verse 54. Paul is talking about resurrection. He says, when the perishable um, has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, excuse me, then the saying that is written will come true from Hosea. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what, who, uh, someone who looks like they're losing on the cross is really winning. That the ultimate, the ultimate uh, power that had to be defeated was death. And the early Christians say, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is is your sting where oh death is your victory where oh death is your sting if if we go back to the image of jesus on the cross i would say romans one jesus zero but that's not what's going on the cross fundamentally changes the way the world works something is happening that we have to process and the only way i can best articulate this is by describing to you um as we, we talk about uh, Colossians chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians, the only way I can describe what's happen, happening in this, in this text, in this, the theology behind it, is what happens when I play ping pong. So, do you, for those of you that play ping pong, and there's some of us that really play ping pong. And so, I was going to bring in a ping pong table and actually play Mickey, uh, our worship leader, and just illustrate this point. But, um, here's the thing about ping pong. You know, do you, for those of you that play, there's a point where you're playing ping pong and that that their opponent, your opponent is giving you their very, very best. And you just know there's no way this guy's going to win. <laughs> right. And so the trash talk starts and the taunting begins. 
You know, like, for example, there's another story. Ping pong's another example. Uh, I used to do youth ministry, and my favorite part about youth ministry was playing junior hires in dodgeball. For those of you that don't know my junior high history, that was not a fun time in my life. So to go back to junior high and play dodgeball against junior hires, it's just like the ultimate revenge coming true. The guy that never got picked, you know, that was me. Um, so there you are playing dodgeball against 12-year-olds, and they don't have their fully developed arms, but you're, you're 19, 20, and you can just whip that ball and nail it. It's just like not even a contest. And the taunting, the trash talk, that all begins. When Corinthians, when Paul writes in Corinthians about a Hosea passage, where, O oh, death, is your sting? They are taunting death. Jesus is victorious on the cross. He looks defeated, but he is not defeated. He is willing, willingly laying down his life in the most horrific way. The, the powers that be is throwing everything at him. Death comes at him and that can't keep him down. He's saying, where's your sting? Death doesn't work for me. It doesn't look good on me. It's almost like God's, the cross is God's way, way of saying to the powers of the world, is that the best you got? Is that all you got? The worst possible thing that could happen to Jesus happens to him. Death is the worst possible death he receives on the cross. Jesus is raised from the dead and he wins. He conquers it once and for all. The cross fundamentally changes the way the world works. The cross, cross pushes back against the way the world once worked. Jesus will say, I have overcome the world in John's gospel. Don't worry, I have overcome the world. And think about the implications of that for your own life. Let's go back to that list real quick, if you would. Would you go back to that list again? I want to make this point. So I just want to make this point because this is what happens to Jesus. So he's questioned. He's betrayed. He's spit on. He's struck in the face. He's slapped. He's mocked. He's denied. Next slide. He's given a crown of thorns. He's stripped naked. He's struck with a rod. He's flogged, insulted, crucified, left naked to die. Now, how would you respond knowing the way the world works for you? Let's look at how Jesus responds. Go to, um, let's go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. I'm just trying to give us a perspective this morning. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. So he's on the cross. Luke's on the cross. We'll start in verse 32. So Jesus is on the cross, excuse me. Two other men, both criminals, Verse 32, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. One on his right and the other on his left. So Jesus has had all this stuff happen to him. And the only thing he can conjure up and say out of his mouth is, Father, forgive them. For they know they do not know what they are doing. Jesus suffers the worst possible thing the world can throw at him. And his first response is forgiveness. Let's just keep reading. And they divided up his clothes and cast, uh, casting lots. 
the people stood around, stood watching. They, the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar. And he said, if you are the king of Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above his head, which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung hung there hurled insults at him. So another guy who's crucified is hurling insults at him. I mean, how humiliating. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then Jesus, uh, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answers him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. His first response is forgiveness. His second response is invitation. Dying on the cross. Forgiveness and invitation. Go to John's gospel. One last picture of what Jesus looks like in his worst possible moment in life. John chapter 20. All this has been going on. And this just, I want, to, I want you to see how human Jesus is. Because this just gets me. John chapter, um, sorry, 19, verse 25. <clears throat> nineteen twenty-five. Jesus is on the cross. Now, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there with the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple is named John, standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Jesus is dying on the cross. And his thought is, as the oldest son, who's going to take care of my mom? So Jesus' response to the list is forgiveness, invitation, care. You could say his response is simply love. That given the worst the world could give to him, Jesus responds in love. The cross gives us a whole new way to live. The cross gives us a whole new set of choices in our everyday life. The world will have you believe that today when you leave or tomorrow on your commute, when someone cuts you off, that the best possible thing is to get around them, cut them off, slow down so that one day they'll drive off to the side and weep, right? The cross says there's another way. Or when your spouse says that that hurtful line to you and you've been taught by the world that what you do in those situations is just say maybe something from her past that might hurt just a little bit more. So if she pushed two buttons, you push three. Do you know what I'm talking about? The cross says there's another way. That where death is your sting. The cross allows us to always respond in love. The cross empowers us. To always choose love. The greatest choice that we have in our everyday life today is love. And this is really hard. But he gives us the power to do it. The cross gives us choices. And the choice we have is to operate the way the world works, which is fundamentally different. It used to operate this way, but it now operates this way. So when you're fighting back, when you're arguing, when I'm saying things that I shouldn't say, when I'm cutting that person off, I'm literally operating in the way the world used to work. 
Does that make sense? One way to look at the cross from now on is just to say the cross changed the way the world works. So let's choose love. Amen? So as we move towards Easter, can we just keep this in mind? That it, the cross has dramatic implications for right now. I mean, I, I could just give a list of all the ways I'm not choosing to respond in love. But I want to. So if you're anything like me, today's about confession. Today's the radical reorientation of my soul that says I haven't been choosing love. I haven't been choosing to operate in this type of world, in this type of reality. Yes, I, you know, it's easy for me to see Jesus on the cross and say, thank you for taking my sins and getting me to heaven. But it's a lot harder for me to say, well, that has dramatic implications for how I treat my spouse or how I treat my kids or my coworkers or how I drive my car. But that but it does. So the invitation I have for us this morning is as the worship team comes up is to take communion together um, because the communion became I don't know how I'm going to move this. Oh, so good. So communion became the ultimate um, practice symbol of the work of Jesus. It's taken from the Passover meal. Um, Jesus doesn't use Yom, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He uses the Passover to to identify what he did, on, what his work in ministry was, which was about liberation. How many of us feel like we're enslaved to something? Jesus comes to free us. But so the the cracker represents his body. Thanks, sorry about that. Uh, rep- represents his body that was broken for us. This represents that list for us as a body, as a universal church around the world, and as individuals. So this becomes personal. What I love about the high church, the Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, is they have a higher view of, of communion, communion than most of us. And we can learn from them. Even they will, they will chew the cracker slowly to remember what, what, what put Christ on that cross. So I want to invite you to take the symbols that are here for us. Take a cracker and dip it in the juice. Um, we're, we're all going to stand up, and what I want to ask is that we go from the sides and come through the middle, because there's going to be a long line. But I want to invite all of you that are followers of Jesus for what this represents, to, to respond with slowly walking and remembering what it cost, but also remembering that this is an invitation to live a different way. So when you have that list against you, Jesus responds, is that all you got? Right? But, but, but this... And this, and that, is that all you got? Cool. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, um, thank you. Thank you that you did it. That you took our place. Thank you, God, that in your scripture, you reveal that um, you are so human and you experienced the worst possible thing that this, this life could give you. And you still responded out of a choice to love. And that gives us hope. Thank you, God, that you care enough about our lives to give us your spirit, to empower us to live as a whole people. And God, we want to we reflect deeply. We want to drink from the well that you have. Help us, Lord, to meditate and to reflect and live in response to what you've, you've done on the cross today. 
Give us grace for ourselves as you give us grace every day. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I can invite you to stand and uh, do what we do. We've done for 2000 years and we're going to take communion. So we could just go by the rows and kind of come down here. It's going to be messy, but welcome to the garden. So we can worship and take communion. Thank you.
Hey, can we can we all stand together? Sorry about running out of the crackers. <laughs> Haven't had that problem before. It's a good problem to have. And, you know, it's interesting because corporately we all got to partake in the body of Christ, body and blood, which is a symbol that's been practiced for thousands of years. And so I think it's cool because um, last week we had an amazing response to what God was doing with the power of the Holy Spirit moving. I mean, I don't know if you were here, but we had too many people up here to get prayer. And this week we're actually doing another thing. So I just want to talk about that for a second, because it's not always about responding um, the way we do each week. Each week is different. And there are rhythms and God, God is doing things. So last week, the Holy Spirit's moving in a powerful way. And this week, the, God's moving and the Holy Spirit's moving in a different, powerful way. Does that make sense? So some of us love the Holy Spirit stuff. We just, oh, we get energized and we're like, that's what we want. Yes. And I'm, I'm like that. And then some of us are, are afraid of that or we don't like it or it's not something that we're used to. And so this is more natural. Can I just say it's okay? But it's not one or the other. But that in the body of Christ, we can worship in diverse ways. And this is good to do it as family. So can we just have permission to keep going for it? Whatever we do, just have permission to go for it. Let me just read this one more time. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Lord Jesus, thank you. We celebrate you. And we ask for the power to be good husbands good spouses, good students, good children, good parents, good co-workers, good employers, good employees. We ask, Lord, that you would empower us to be your witness um, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, um, in the city, in our workplaces, in our relationships. We ask, Lord Jesus, that we take seriously the call to the cross and that we learn desperately how to love like you did, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.